Welcome to episode 378 of So You Want to Be a Writer. This is the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and an incredibly supportive writing community. Regular listeners will know that I usually co-host this podcast every week with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery, plus many other books. Alison's having a break this summer and she's doing family things, so um, I'm going it alone for a little while, for a few episodes only. This episode is a story session where we read, or the author, or someone fabulously famous, generally reads around the first chapter of a book that we recommend. So you can sample it while you're folding the laundry, or mowing the lawn, or cutting your dog's hair, or whatever. Uh, Particularly in a period like this, where some areas are in lockdown, my area certainly is, you might not be able to go to the bookshop. So uh, this is our way to bring the bookshop to you. This week, I've chosen The Book of Two Ways by Jodie Pico. This is the latest novel from the best-selling author of My Sister's Keeper, Small Great Things, 19 Minutes, A Spark of Light, and many more. Jodie is well known for tackling big issues and complicated moral topics, uh, and The Book of Two Ways is no exception. This time, it's death, motherhood, choices, and regrets. So here's the blurb so you have an idea of what it's about. Dawn Edelstein knows everything there is to know about dying. She specialises in helping her clients make peace with the end of their lives. But as she's flying home from her latest case, she's forced to confront her own mortality for the first time. Instead of seeing her brilliant quantum physicist husband and their beloved daughter flash before her eyes in what she assumes are her last moments, only one face is shockingly clear. Wyatt Armstrong. Safely on the ground, Dawn now faces a desperate decision. Should she return to Boston, her family life and the life she knows, or journey back to an Egyptian archaeological site she left over a decade earlier, reconnect with Wyatt and finally finish her abandoned magnum opus, The Book of Two Ways. As the story unfolds, Dawn must confront the questions she's never truly answered. What does a well-lived life look like? When we depart this earth, what do we leave behind of ourselves? And who would you be if you hadn't turned out to be the person you are right now? It's a complex and thought-provoking book, and it's bound to be another best-selling hit. So here is the prologue from The Book of Two Ways by Jodie Pico. Prologue My calendar is full of dead people. When my phone alarm chimes, I fish it out from the pocket of my cargo pants. I've forgotten, with the time change, to turn off the reminder. I'm still groggy with sleep. But I open the date and read the names. Iris Vale, Yun Ai Kim, Alan Rosenfeld, Marlon Jensen. I close my eyes and do what I do every day at this moment. I remember them. Iris, who died tiny and bird-like, had once driven a getaway car for a man she loved who'd robbed a bank. Yun Ai, who had been a doctor in Korea but couldn't practice in the United States. Alan had proudly showed me the urn he bought for his cremated remains, and then I joked, I haven't tried it on yet. 
Marlon had changed out all the toilets in his house and put in new flooring and cleaned the gutters. He bought graduation gifts for his two children and hid them away. He took his 12-year-old daughter to a hotel ballroom and waltzed with her while I filmed it on his iPhone so that the day she got married, there would be a video of her dancing with her father. At one point, they were my clients. Now they're my stories to keep. Everyone in my row is asleep. I slip my phone back into my pocket and carefully crawl over the woman to my right without disturbing her, air traveller's yoga, to make my way to the bathroom in the rear of the plane. There I blow my nose and look in the mirror. I'm at the age where that's a surprise, where I still think I'm going to see a younger woman rather than the one who blinks back at me. Lines fan from the corners of my eyes, like the creases of a familiar map. If I untangle the braid that lies over my left shoulder, these terrible fluorescent lights would pick up those first grey strands in my hair. I'm wearing baggy pants with an elastic waist, like every other sensible, nearly 40 woman who knows she's going to be on a plane for a long-haul flight. I grab a handful of tissues and open the door, intent on heading back to my seat, but the little galley area is packed with flight attendants. They're knotted together like a frown. They stop talking when I appear. Ma'am, one of them says, could you please take your seat? It strikes me that their job isn't really very different from mine. If you're on a plane, you're not where you started, and you're not where you're going. You're caught in between. A flight attendant is the guide who helps you navigate that passage smoothly. As a death doula, I do the same thing, but the journey is from life to death, and at the end you don't disembark with 200 other travellers, you go alone. I climb back over the sleeping woman in the aisle seat and buckle my seatbelt just as the overhead lights blaze and the cabin comes alive. Ladies and gentlemen, a voice announces, we have just been informed by the captain that we're going to have a planned emergency. Please listen to the flight attendants and follow their directions. I'm frozen. Planned emergency? The oxymoron sticks in my mind. There's a quick rush of sound. Shock rolls through the cabin. But no screams, no loud cries. Even the baby behind me, who shrieked for the first two hours of the flight, is silent. We're crashing, the woman on the aisle whispers. Oh my God, we're crashing. She must be wrong. There hasn't even been turbulence. Everything has been normal. But then the flight attendants station themselves in the aisles, performing a strange staccato ballet of safety movements as instructions are read over the speakers. Fasten your seatbelts. When you hear the word brace, assume the brace position. After the plane comes to a complete stop, you'll hear, release your seatbelts. Get out. Leave everything behind. Leave everything behind. For someone who makes a living through death, I haven't given a lot of thought to my own. I've heard that when you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes. But I do not picture my husband, Brian, his sweater streaked with inevitable chalk dust from the old school blackboards in his physics lab. Or Merritt, as a little girl, asking me to check for monsters under the bed. I do not envision my mother, not like she was at the end or before that, when Kieran and I were young. Instead, I see him. As clearly as if it were yesterday, I imagine Wyatt in the middle of the Egyptian desert, the sun beating down on his hat, his neck ringed with dirt from the constant wind, his teeth a flash of lightning, a man who hasn't been part of my life for fifteen years, a place I left behind. A dissertation I never finished. 
ancient Egyptians believed that to get to the afterlife, they had to be deemed innocent in the judgment hall. Their hearts were weighed against the feather of mart, of truth. I'm not so sure my heart will pass. The woman to my right is softly praying in Spanish. I fumble for my phone, thinking to turn it on, to send a message, even though I know there is no signal, but I can't seem to open the button on my pants pocket. A hand catches mine and squeezes. I look down at our fists, squeezed so tight a secret couldn't slip between our palms. Brace, the flight attendants yell, brace! As we fall out of the sky, I wonder who will remember me. Much later, I would learn that when a plane crashes and the emergency personnel show up, the flight attendants tell them how many souls were on board. Souls, not people. As if they know our bodies are only passing through for a little while. I would learn that one of the fuel filters became clogged mid-flight. That the second filter clogging light came on in the cockpit 45 minutes out, and in spite of what the pilots tried, they could not clear it, and they realised they'd have to do a land evacuation. I would learn that the plane came in short of Raleigh Durham, sticking down in the football field of a private school. As it hit the bleachers with a wing, the plane tipped, rolled, broke into pieces. Much later, I would learn of the family with the baby behind me, whose row of three seats separated from the floor and was thrown free from the aircraft, killing them instantly. I would hear about the six others who had been crushed as the metal buckled, the flight attendant who never came out of her coma. I would read the names of the passengers in the last ten rows who hadn't gotten out of the broken fuselage before it erupted in flame. I would learn that I was one of 36 people who walked away from the crash. When I step out of the examination room of the hospital we've been taken to, I'm dazed. A woman in a uniform is in the hallway talking to a man with a bandaged arm. She is part of an emergency response team from the airline that has overseen medical checks by physicians, given us clean clothes and food, and flown in frantic family members. Ms Edelstein, she says, and I blink until I realise she's talking to me. A million years ago, I had been Dawn McDowell. I'd published under that name, but my passport and licence read Edelstein, like Brian's. In her hand, she had a checklist of crash survivors. She puts a tick next to my name. Have you been seen by a doctor? Not yet. I glance back at the examination room. Okay, I'm sure you have some questions. That's an understatement. Why am I alive? when others aren't. Why did I book this particular flight? What if I'd been detained checking in and had missed it? What if I'd made any of a thousand other choices that would have led me far away from this crash? At that, I think of Brian and his theory of the multiverse. Somewhere in a parallel timeline, there is another me at my own funeral. At the same time, I think, again, always, of Wyatt. I have to get out of here. I don't realise I've said this out loud until the airline representative responds. Once we get the doctor's paperwork, you're clear to leave. Is someone coming for you or do you need us to make travel arrangements? We, the lucky ones, have been told we can have a plane ticket anywhere we need to go, to our destination, back to where the flight originated, even somewhere else if necessary. I've already called my husband. Brian offered to come get me, but I told him not to. I didn't say why. I clear my throat. I have to book a flight, I say. Absolutely, the woman nods. 
Where do you need to go? Boston, I think. Home. But there's something about the way she phrases the question. Need instead of want. And another destination rises like steam in my mind. I open my mouth and I answer. What an intense beginning. And I have to say, it stays pretty intense throughout the whole book. If you'd like to read The Book of Two Ways by Jodie Pico, it's out now with Alan and Unwin. If you're interested in learning how to craft your own powerful novel, check out our creative writing courses. That's what Penelope Janu did, and she now has several novels published by HarperCollins, including Up on Horseshoe Hill, On the Right Track, In at the Deep End, and her latest is Starting from Scratch. Let's have a listen to Penelope. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course, with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Penelope Janu has had several novels published by HarperCollins, including In at the Deep End, On the Right Track and Up on Horseshoe Hill. Here's what she says. Well, now I'm a writer. I was a lawyer for many years before that. I had a long um, career as a solicitor, first of all, and then I worked in academia at a university teaching law uh, for almost 20 years. But now, um, since the publication of my book, um, and I've written another one and another one after that, um, I'm pretty much a full-time writer. Well, I suppose my first real introduction to writing was at the Australian Writers' Centre. Uh, my daughter, who's a children's author, she sent me a link and she said, Mum, this might be good for you because she knew I'd been talking about writing, I've been thinking about studying. So I enrolled in the course um, and that very much was a stepping stone for me. I'd never written creatively. I'd written a lot as an academic, uh, but not creatively. And I was very nervous, uh, but Lisa was, was really encouraging and there were so many others around me. So I guess it gave me the courage to think, gee, you know, this is something that I can do. It was very exciting. I'd been writing very hard for a, a couple of years. I actually pitched the novel to Harlequin Mira at the um, Romance Writers of Australia conference. She loved it and she wanted to take it to acquisitions and so within a week, yeah, I knew that there was a likelihood that, that Harlequin Mira would support the novel and would publish it. And then it was a very busy year doing all the editing and so on with it. Um, the best thing about the course that I've done is really it gave me the confidence to have faith in my own voice, that my own voice is something that's unique to me. The knowledge of that means that you, you might also think as an early career author is that you have something to say that other people might want to hear because you have that unique voice. I started a bit later and there can be a benefit in that. So if you're somebody who has already had a career or brought up your family, um, don't be afraid to start. And so doing a course will certainly give you that confidence. It can certainly assist you in that. And if you need longer term support, then obviously there are other, other courses. So your writing community can become your tribe in many ways and you will find people within that community that are supportive, that are encouraging. And they're the people that you need to connect with in order to, um, to grow and to, um, to succeed, I guess, as a writer. If you'd like to find out more, go to writercentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. 
You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at writerscentreau on Twitter and Instagram, and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'll be back to our regular programming where you'll have an author interview, word of the week, and much more in our next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.